Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Numbers today, getting into chapter 2 and reading, uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 52, actually. We're going to back up into the end of chapter 1. We're going to read all the way through chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 through verse 10. So Numbers chapter 1, verse 52, reading through chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, if uh, you were unable to be with us last week, never fear. This, the census that we saw last week is going to be summarized again in our passage. And what you will see mostly in chapter 2 is the division of the tribes of Israel into various camps and how they were to be stationed uh, as the people settled down in any place where they were in the wilderness and also how they marched forth through the wilderness with the Lord. Uh, but wrapped around that text, and this is the reason we're backing into chapter 1, uh, we're going to see the call to holiness and the reason that one tribe, the Levites, uh, were pulled away from the other tribes and put around the tabernacle of God in the middle. And so Numbers chapter 1, uh, today we are going to read the entire text again, beginning in verse 52 of chapter 1 through chapter uh, 3, verse 10. Before we read this word, let's go to the Lord together and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your work among your people. We pray that as we read these words, you would give us attention to what you would have us to see here, uh, enliven our hearts and our minds, uh, keep us focused not only on the names and the numbers, but on you who orders and directs your people. We pray, Father, that we would see more of our Savior, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would lead us to yourself through this, your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we find it in the book of Numbers, beginning in chapter 1, verse 52. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard, But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab, his company as listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zoar, his company, as listed, being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun, being Eliab, the son of Helan, his company, as listed, being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah, by their companies, were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben, by their companies, the chief of the people of Reuben being Elizer, the son of Shedeir, his company as listed being 46,500. Those that camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, 
the chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai. His company, as listed, being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad, being Eliasaph, the son of Reuel, his company, as listed, being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben, by their companies, were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out, with the camp of Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so they shall set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amihud, his company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Pedazer, his company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin, being Abidan, the son of Gideoni, his company is listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim, by their companies, were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan, by their companies. The chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. His company is listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher the chief of the people of Asher, being Pagiel, the son of Akron. His company is listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali, being Ahira, the son of Enon. His company as listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel, as listed by their fathers' houses, all those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he anointed, ordained, excuse me, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron their father. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study together today. Uh, you know that, uh, that some people use an app 
Uh, others have a paper calendar. Uh, some have uh, your, your complicated planners with your categories and your tabs and your little motivational reminders. Other people seem to have no system at all whatsoever. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, of course, the way that you organize your life, uh, the way that you keep track of where you need to be, what you need to do, the things that are important, the things that you can forget. Uh, personal organization is big business. It's become a cottage industry. It has become a testimony to the ever-increasing complexity of our lives and the ever-increasing abundance of all of our stuff. We have gotten to the point, you're aware, that, uh, that we now consider it legitimate entertainment to watch shows in which other people pay professionals to tidy up their spaces for them. It's become a spectator sport organization in our day. We've gotten to the point where there are entire stores dedicated to selling nothing but containers for all of our stuff. We have gotten to the place where there are entire sections in bookstores when you can find them, hawking the latest organizational system that will promise to make you more productive, more efficient, less cluttered, less stressed, and generally happier in every aspect of your life. Organization is becoming one of the unquestioned virtues in our day. It's right up there with things like kindness and authenticity, the sort of thing that everyone should strive for and no one should question. Of course, good organization uh, has been around a lot longer than Marie Kondo. Uh, and it comes down to more than just personal taste. The world works better when things are organized. We know that. Even if we're an unorganized person, we know that things work better when the world is organized. There is a reason that city councils hire urban planning professionals, because the world works better when it's organized. There is a reason that large corporations have chief operational officers. There is a reason why sound churches have elders and deacons, because the world works better when it's organized. And there's something about good order, uh, not just that fits with type A sort of Presbyterians, but good order in the way that it reflects the character of the God who made the world that we live in. Think about it for a minute. The prevailing secular worldview would teach us that a random string of purposeless, directionless, Meaningless events has produced a cosmos in which crab nebula are intrinsically beautiful, in which the laws of logic are fixed and permanent, and in which your dictionary works better because it's alphabetized. All came about because of randomness and somehow settled into organization, and that's how things work well. On the other hand, the Bible tells us while the earth was formless and void, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It tells us that it was he who brought about the continents and the mountains and the rivers. The Word of God tells us that it's the Lord who brought forth trees according to their kinds and birds after their species. It's the Lord who made man, male and female, and put them in creation to work it and subdue it and make it fruitful. From the beginning of time, the Lord has revealed himself as the God who delights in a well-ordered world. 
Einstein, wrote that the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is comprehensible. That is, that we can figure it out, that it works according to predictable organizational principles, that there is order rather than being chaos. Why is it that there, the world is such that we can understand it and predict it and to some extent know how it holds together? That is because the Lord is a God of order. It is, by the way, the first lesson we learn in this passage that the Lord is the God of good order. He is the Lord who leads his people and he delights in ordering them and their lives well. He is the God who invented organization. And he is the God whose good order reflects his good purposes for his church. The Lord is the God of good order. You don't have to dig very deep to find that in Numbers. It's all over chapter 2, right on the surface. The entire chapter is about organization. It's about how the people were to be set up and how they were to set out when it was time to follow the Lord in the wilderness. If you have a study Bible with you today, tune out for the next three minutes because you've probably got a diagram at the bottom of your page that can show it much more easily than I can tell it. But the basic system is very straightforward. The Lord tells his people that they are to camp around the tabernacle on all sides. The opening of the tabernacle opened toward east, which in a world before magnetic compasses, east was the cardinal direction. We think of everything in terms of north. But the ancient world thought of everything in terms of east, toward the sunrise. It wasn't a pagan thing. It wasn't about worshiping the sun. It was just a fixed point that you always knew. So the tabernacle opened toward the east and beginning in that direction and then moving clockwise, the Lord describes four camps, each camp with three tribes. In each of those camps, it seems there was one tribe that was primary and the other two that were connected. And so each of those camps is named by the name of the primary tribe. So to the east was the camp of Judah. And to the south was the camp of Reuben. And to the west was the camp of Ephraim. And north of the tabernacle was the camp of of Dan. And then in the center of the nation, as, as a kind of demilitarized zone between the tabernacle and the people, well, there were the Levites. They also camped around the tabernacle on each side. We'll find later there were three clans of Levites. Toward the east were Moses and Aaron and their sons. And then the other three clans of the Levites pitched their tents around the tabernacle of the testimony. And then when the nation set out, they marched in a designated order. Judah took the lead, and Dan was last. And the tabernacle came in the middle with the Levites. As far as the details are concerned, it's very straightforward. But a question we ought to be asking when we read a passage like this is, why that order? Why that particular organizational structure for God's people. Why does the Lord go into that much detail? Why does he mandate something as simple as where the people were supposed to pitch their tents? I mean, Moses is a pretty smart guy. Why didn't the Lord just say, you know, Moses, I want to make sure the tabernacle stays in the middle, and beyond that, I don't know, figure it out, right? Make sure everybody has enough room, make sure they're not stepping on one another's toes, but, but then, you know, let the people choose their own neighbors and their own neighborhoods. Instead, he gives them order. 
He gives them organization and purpose and an order for the layout of their nation. And he gives them order according to his own standards and his own purposes. You realize as you read the details of chapter 2 that the way that the Lord ordered his people to set up represents everything other than the way that we like to organize ourselves if given the chance. We like to organize ourselves along that other unchallenged virtue of our modern age, the one that we call fairness, equality. Everybody on the same footing, equal outcomes for everyone, or at least equal uh, chances for everyone involved, equal opportunities. Well, how do we pursue fairness in our organization? Well, you've uh, been to a child's uh, birthday party. Uh, You know that one of the ways that we pursue organization and, and fairness is to give randomization. Put all the names in a hat, Moses. Pull them out one by one. It's a system that will work just as well as any other. At least that way, nobody can claim priority and nobody's feelings will be hurt if they get picked last. It's not like it was intentional. You just happen to be the last one. The Lord doesn't give his people the luck of the draw. He doesn't give them randomization. Neither does the Lord give his people competition. That's the other way that we aim at fairness. We call it fair play. The political pundits on on the media and the TV will call it a meritocracy. The strong survive and and let the rest of it sort itself out. Again, you've been to a child's birthday party. Everybody gets a whack at the pinata, but may the strongest and fastest kid get all the gobstoppers. And so one of the ways we aim toward fairness is to level the playing field and let the people duke it out. But that doesn't happen here among God's people. The tribes don't get to pick their favorite and their best warrior and send them out to see who is the strongest. Instead, the Lord assigns them their places. He picks them. He puts them exactly where he wants them to go. And in assigning the tribes, uh, he also does not give what we today think of as equity. Everybody on the same level, nobody getting priority. Ian Duguid points out that in the old fable of King Arthur, all the knights, you remember, sat around a round table. And it was a way of showing that nobody was better and nobody was the leader and nobody was the head and nobody was the tail. But in Israel, there is a first. In Israel, there is a last. Judah is the leader of the tribes. They camped toward the east in the cardinal direction, toward the sunrise. They were always the first to break camp. They were always the first to set out. And in times of battle, they served as the tip of God's spear hurtling into the promised land. Judah was the first by God's choice. And they held that first place despite the fact that Reuben was the oldest. So we examine the details here. We find the way that the Lord arranges his people and we recognize that he does things his own way. The tribes are not random, but they're ordered. They're not competitive, but they're assigned. They are not equal, but they are prioritized. Why? Well, Because the Lord is a God of good order. Because his order reflects his purposes for his people. There are reasons we can think of for why this structure and why not others. There are practical reasons, of course, why the tabernacle, with all of its treasures of gold and silver, should travel in the middle of the people. There are practical reasons. 
And there are tactical reasons why the two largest tribes should be at the head and at the tail of the marching band as they go through the wilderness. And in fact, there are shameful historical reasons why Reuben should be bumped from first place to second place. And you can go back and do your homework and read the rest of the Old Testament and find out exactly why that is true. But the reason, the theological reason that the Lord places Judah at the front is that Judah is the line from which God's kings will come. And you can trace that out too. Remember Genesis chapter 49. There on the verge uh, of death, at the end of his days, Jacob gathers his 12 sons to proclaim God's blessing on each one of them. And it's part benediction, uh, it's part will and testament, it's also part prophecy. Because in Genesis 49, he gathers his sons and he says, gather around to me so that I may tell you what will happen to each of you in days to come. He is self-consciously prophesying what is the will of God for each of the tribes. And among all the blessings that fall to all of the sons, it is through Jacob that the Lord places the kingdom on the shoulders of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's a reminder that the Lord chose Judah before the nation was ever big enough to even need a king. It's a reminder that the Lord chose David, who was the first of Judah's kings, long before he was even out in the fields tending the sheep. It's a reminder that the Lord chose Joseph to be the surrogate father to the one who was to be born both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. In chapter 5 of, uh, of Joshua, we find that the coming king of Judah appears as the captain of the armies of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find the king is called the founder of and perfecter of our faith. But here, in Numbers chapter 2, the seed of all of those things is planted in the order of the tribes. Don't get me wrong. Let's not read too much into the passage here. Let's not get carried away. Judah is not the Messiah to come. But it is through Judah, and through his tribe, at the head of the peoples, that the Messiah will come. It's through Judah that the lion will come to lead his people. It's through Judah as the head of the tribes that the Lord will deliver his people through the Messiah who is to come. And so it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It is the Lord who is the God of good order. Because that's true, the second lesson we learn in this passage is that the Lord orders his people around his presence. The Lord orders his people around his presence. I had a conversation this past week with someone who who does not attend our church. We're talking about spiritual things. In the course of our conversation, we, we landed on the topic of what to think about and what to do with the second half of the book of Exodus. I love the second half of the book of Exodus, but I'll be the first one to tell you that it catches a lot of people off guard especially if you're trying to make your way reading through the Bible straight through for the first time, 
It's the second half of Exodus, round about chapter 25, that you really find how determined you are. It works almost in the way, reverse of the way that we, we approach numbers. Right? Numbers has this, uh, this undeserved reputation, this bad reputation as a book that's dull because it's all about names and numbers. And then you begin to read it and you find there's all this drama. And there's all this narrative about God leading and directing and shepherding his people. Exodus, on the other hand, we associate with the miraculous. Right? We think big thoughts about the book of Exodus. It's about signs, and it's about plagues. It's about the parting of the Red Sea. It's about Mount Sinai. It's about this hard-hearted Pharaoh uh, and the Lord who bears his powerful right arm to draw his people out of the furnace of slavery. But then you hit chapter 25, and it's detail after detail and cubit after cubit about how to build the, uh, the tabernacle of the Lord. And it goes that way for the rest of the book, except for a little intermission in the middle, verses, uh, chapters 32 to 34. And many people, when they're reading Exodus, they get bogged down in that portion of the book because they don't understand what's going on, and they don't understand what's going on because they don't understand the tabernacle. That also is the other detail that we can't miss in Numbers chapter 2. Take a look in verse 2. We find that everything in the life of Israel is focused on the tabernacle of testimony at the center of the camp. Verse 2, the people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. If you have a different translation, it probably takes a different flavor there. Instead of saying something like facing the tent of meeting, it'll say something like at a distance away from it far off, some space in between. So the ESV says, facing most other modern English translations, including the King James, say something like some distance away. Actually, the real idea seems to be a combination of the two. The actual word in Hebrew there means opposite to. It means toward, but, but not touching. It means across from, oriented in the same direction, but with a bit of distance. If, if you live across the street from me, we live in the same neighborhood, but, but there's some distance, and we're facing one another. Now, that's what it was supposed to be like in the camp. Everyone lived opposite the tabernacle on every side. Everyone lived with their lives pointed toward God's house, oriented toward the place where he promised to dwell among them. And that brings us back to the second half of Exodus. Back to the point of the tabernacle. That's because the main question that drives the narrative of Exodus is this. Will the Lord dwell among his people? Will he be with them? Will he be present in the midst of a sinful people? And that is what the tabernacle was about. It's true that the tabernacle was supposed to be a place of worship. It's true that the tabernacle was the place where the priests offered their sacrifices. It's true that in the tabernacle there was the ark of the Lord which housed the tablets of testimony of the covenant to remind the people of the relationship they had with their God. All of those are true, but first and foremost, the tabernacle was the place that the Lord resided. 
where the presence of his holiness and his glory took up residence among the people he was leading to himself. We're going to walk through a bit of it, so turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. And then jump down to verse 8. And with that contribution, let them make me a sanctuary, why? That I may dwell in their midst. And then the rest of chapter 25 up to chapter 32, it's detail after detail. It's cubit after cubit. It's instruction after instruction on how they are to make the tabernacle exactly as the Lord commanded. Because the tabernacle was the place that the Lord was going to dwell among them. In fact, in that intermission in the middle with the golden calf incident in chapter 32, when the Lord comes and he gives his verdict on what's going to happen to the people, one of the most devastating things he has to tell Moses is, I will not go with you. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jump down to verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is what their sin had cost them. They could have the other blessings of the covenant. They could have the land because God made them a promise. But he says, because you are sinful, I will not be with you. Which is why it's such a revelation. Which is why it's such a gracious, wonderful blessing. After Moses intercedes for the people. And after the Lord comes down to proclaim his character. That he is the God who is abounding in steadfast love. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It seems anticlimactic that in chapter 36 we go right back to detail after detail. And cubit after cubit. And instruction after instruction. But it's a wonderful thing because they're building the tabernacle. Because the Lord will be among his people. That's what the tabernacle was all about. And so you keep reading and you come to the end of the book, chapter 40 in Exodus. And here's what we find. That the Lord will dwell in the midst of his people. Chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud of the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So in Exodus, this central question, will the Lord dwell among his people? And the answer is yes. Yes, he will. Despite their sin, 
despite their hard-heartedness, despite their undeserving idolatry, God will be with them. Because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Because the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Because the Lord is slow to anger. Because the Lord is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And because of his character, he will dwell among his people. And if you need proof, Moses could say, look to the tabernacle. Look to the tabernacle in the midst of God's people. That's what it means that the Lord would be with them. I realize that this seems like a long detour from our text in Numbers, but you need to know what's going on here. When you trace out the timeline, you find in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. That is precisely one month after the tabernacle has been set up, after the glory of the Lord has descended from the mountain to the midst. And the memory of their sin is still fresh in their mind. And the assurance of God's forgiveness was fresh too. And the tabernacle of the Lord is burning bright with smoke and fire as this sign that God was among them. And then the Lord speaks in Numbers chapter 2 to say, wherever you camp and wherever you go and whatever you do, see to it that the people live with their lives turned toward the presence of the Lord. See to it that they always remember that I am with them. The Lord could have told Moses to arrange the camp in any number of ways. He he could have directed that a, a, a platoon of soldiers is always on the perimeter, always facing outward. Always guarding and, and, and warning against raiders and bandits and enemies. Instead, he says, camp around my presence and turn toward me because I will be your protection. He could have told them to break off into groups, to send commandos and scouts ahead to find the next best place where they would set up uh, in the wilderness. But instead, he says, look to the Lord. Because he will be your guide. He could have ordered the people to divide into sub-nations. Into coalitions of tribes. There were clearly enough of them. To divide and conquer and to take over the promised land through a wave of, of skirmishes and soldiers coming in at different entry points. He could have told them to do that. Instead, he gathers the whole people as one nation. One tribe of many tribes united to the Lord of hosts, and it's he who holds them all together at the center. That's what the well-ordered life looks like. It's turned toward the Lord. It's filled with faith, knowing that he's the one who dwells among you. It's filled with the knowledge that you can call on him and his fatherly care, because he's with you. It's filled with the assurance that he's present for protection, that his word gives you guidance, that he walks with you every step of your journey and your pilgrimage with him. It means being filled with the recognition that dwelling with him puts you in unity with every other believer who also abides in the Lord by faith. 
For the Christian, it means knowing the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's not insignificant, is it? When John tells us that the word became flesh and tabernacled, that's the word he uses. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's not insignificant when Paul says that the church is a holy temple in the Lord, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And he goes on to say that in him, in Christ Jesus, you together, not you individually, as he says in Corinthians, you together are being built up into dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God. Because we're unified, because He's with it. It mean, with us. It means that God's people ought to have a different orientation as we move through the world. It was Luther who coined the phrase that we live our lives coram deo, before the face of God, the recognition of His presence, with an awareness that He is with us, with an understanding that His sovereign direction gives. Uh, our lives, purpose, and order. It means living with a conviction that the Lord is with us and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so the Lord was reminding his people that he ordered them, that he called them to be different because he was among them. And you see that in the final lesson of this passage. The lesson is that the Lord orders his people to lead them into holiness. The Lord orders his people in order to lead them into holiness. You know, today when, when we say, when you hear a Christian preacher stand behind a pulpit and say, the Lord is with you. When we hear that, we take it as an encouragement and praise the Lord for that, because it is. When we hear the Lord uh, is with us, we think of Christ Jesus. We think of the words of our resurrected Savior. Wasn't that the promise that he gave us on the Mount of Olives after he had been born into human flesh? And after he had been crucified on a criminal's cross? And after he had been buried into a sinner's tomb? And after he had been risen again, raised again to take away the guilt and the sin that would make the presence of the Lord a terror to the unconverted? There's a shift, isn't there? From woe is me because I have seen the face of God to I will be with you. There's a shift from the presence of God's holiness being a terror to our sin to the presence of God's holiness being an encouragement for his people. You find it all throughout scripture. You find Isaiah crying out before the holiness of Yahweh. You find Peter begging Jesus to depart from his sinfulness. You find it in Revelation. It tells us that even after Jesus has come and been born and died and buried and resurrected and ascended to the Father, when he comes back, there will still be people who wish that the mountains could fall on them, that the earth could swallow them up, not so that they will be destroyed, but so that they might be hidden, so that they will not see the face of him who is utterly and unchangeably and all-consumingly holy. And in the wilderness of Sinai, when the cloud of the Lord descended on the tabernacle and smoke and cloud, and he took his place in the midst of Israel, there was that twinge of terror that instinctively draws back from his holiness. And for good reason. 
So we find toward the end of our passage in chapter 3, a reminder of that incident with Nadab and Abihu. I'm not going to recount it. You can go back and read Leviticus chapter 10. But it's a reminder that not even the priesthood, not even the blood of bulls and goats, and not even the rituals of the tabernacle are a safeguard for those who treat the holiness of God as something to be trifled with. And as the people were turned to the Lord and toward His tabernacle, they were constantly confronted with this fearful presence of the holiness of Yahweh in their midst. And so before the Lord came in the flesh to reconcile us to the Father, before He paid for the sin that separates us from God by His death, before He did that, the Lord gave His people, the Levites, as a reminder. Chapter 1, verse 53. He says, The Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Again, chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. Set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. The Lord has a job for the Levites. It's a job on behalf of the priest. It's also a job on behalf of the people. They're not substitutes. They're certainly not sinless. And as we continue through chapter 3, we'll see the same warning given to the Levites that fell upon Nadab and Abihu. That if they trifle with the holiness of the Lord, they will meet the same fate that those two priests met. So they aren't some kind of neutral barrier between holy God and, and sinful humanity. Not like some uh, absorbent material that can somehow keep the holiness of God in check. They are not mediators in the saving sense of the term. They are instead a reminder of what it looks like to be consecrated to the Lord. They're a reminder of God's calling to all His people to be zealous, to be devoted, to be set apart entirely to the holiness of God. Again, it's the narrative of Exodus that fills in the details and our understanding, and I won't recount it all, but you remember in Exodus chapter 32, on the day the people rebelled with the golden calf, Moses came down and he asked for the people, everyone who was willing to take a stand. Who is on the Lord's side, said Moses? Who will take a stand against the idol worship that they'd learned from the nations? And the Levites took a stand. The Levites were willing to take up arms. The Levites were willing to be counted for the Lord. They became on that day an instrument of God's judgment against those who were perverting the holiness of the people. Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. And Moses said to the Levites, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. We realize it takes an awful lot of contextualization to see how this applies to us. But the point is that the Levites were a picture of consecration. They were a picture of what happens to a believer when the holiness of the Lord gets under their skin. 
they show us what happens when the Lord gives his people spiritual backbone. When he makes them willing to stand against the popular notions of the day. That's what he does. The Lord takes his holiness and he works it into his people from the inside by his Holy Spirit and he makes them unafraid to stand for the Lord even when standing for the Lord is unpopular. He makes them dedicated to his holiness such that they begin to look like him and think like him and speak like him and act like him. We call that process the work of sanctification. Becoming more Christ-like, we say. Westminster Shorter says it's the work of God's free grace. A gift that he does, not something we offer. The work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And so when the Lord gave Moses the arrangement for the people in the wilderness of Sinai, he said, make the nation camp round about my tabernacle, right about my presence, all the way around the side. Make them look toward the center where my perfect purifying holiness will be there among them. And when you do, put the Levites next to my tent. Bring them near as an example of what my spirit will do when I do my work in the people in whom I delight. No wonder the New Testament echoes the Old Testament. It tells us that the church is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. No wonder Malachi, looking backward to the land in, in, uh, in the wilderness and looking forward to the Messiah who is to come, no wonder Malachi tells us that when the Lord draws near to his people, he says he will sit like fire and like soap. He will refine the sons of Levi. He's not just talking about one tribe. He's talking about all God's people. He will make them all purer than gold. It's his work. It's what he's been after all along. He's at work in the lives of his people. He's the God of good order. And he orders us around his presence. And he orders us so that we may walk in his holiness. And he does it to the praise of his glorious grace, says Paul in the New Testament. This is what he's been about. He's got a plan from before the foundations of the world, before he set any order or species or kind in place. This is what he's after. And he's showing us in numbers of his purposes for his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for it. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your good purposes and your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to walk according to your spirit. Work your holiness into the lives of those you call to yourself and join to Jesus. Give us hope in you and be at work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.